Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, I'm Georgie Corridge-Cole and welcome to today's In Conversation With podcast. Today I'm joined by Mandy Hickson. Mandy loved flying from a young age, so it was no surprise that she decided to make a career of it and become a Royal Air Force pilot. During her time, she became the second woman ever to fly a Tornado GR4 on the front line and completed 45 missions over Iraq. Later, Mandy became the squadron's combat survival and rescue officer, a prestigious yet challenging role, and worked closely with the US on special escape and evasion tactics. After such an interesting and notable career, she started motivational speaking, which she now does alongside various voluntary work. On a personal level, I'm really very excited that she's joining us today to talk about her fascinating story. Welcome, Mandy. Thank you very much, Georgie. Lovely to be here. I, I was explaining to you before that I, I flirted with military life, um, was a cadet at school, which um, seems extraordinary to a lot of people. Um, I know. So this is totally fascinating. I'm in awe and can't wait to hear what you have to say. But before we get into the nitty gritty of flying planes, can you tell us a bit about your life growing up, family life? Were you, were you from a military background? Sure. So um, basically, no, um, not my immediate family was not from the military. So my mum was a teacher. My dad ran his own carpet business. My grandpa, though, was a Second World War fighter pilot. And actually, it was through his stories that he drip fed me this exciting world, you know, of daring and do. And I think basically when the air cadets opened its doors to girls, um, it was hilarious. My mum was sitting next to me on the sofa. And I remember it. I had this absolute obsession with Tom Selleck as Magnum. <laughs> uh, you're probably too young for him but you know no. you but I, I love this and it was only on a Tuesday night and I was watching it you know avidly getting my day my weekly fix of this man and uh, my mum said oh the air cadet is opening its doors to girls um next week why don't you join and I said oh sounds interesting what nights it on she said Tuesdays and I went no way because there's no way I'm missing Tom Selleck you know and she said <laughs> to me at this point she said but you go to an all-girls school and it might be your only opportunity to meet some boys and I went Mm, that was a really good sales pitch. So I joined on that premise. Nothing to do with flying. <laughs> um, and, uh, and how old were you? I was 14 when I joined the Air Cadets. So, uh, yeah, that was fantastic. And unlike you, it gives you an insight, doesn't it, into, into the military and, and just a little look as to is this something that might appeal to me in the future? Yeah, I spent, I spent many a cold... Uh, I think probably I think it was a Tuesday evening to marching, doing drill up and down Ascot oh, Racecourse in God. the freezing cold. So anyway, you you went along, and and at what point did you get on get in a plane? Well, they do this thing called um, air experience flying, and that's fantastic because that gives you a thirty minute flight. And I remember going up to Liverpool to Wood RAF Woodvale, and I flew for the first time, and that was literally the thing that ignited the fire. And it was at that point, as soon as I flew, I thought, oh my. God, people do this for a living. You know, they actually get paid to do this amazing thing. I think my dad treated me to a flying lesson at that point. And then 
I decided to try to um, apply for a scholarship, a uh, sort of sponsorship for the Air Force, basically. And they were offering this scholarship at the time, which gave you 30 hours of free flying. And there you could pay to get your private pilot's license. Um, and, and what year are we in at this point? Uh, so that would have been, gosh, I was 17 at that point when I applied. So that would have been in 1990. I mean, flying is notoriously expensive. You know, to be a commercial pilot is hugely difficult. Uh, you know, I have limited knowledge other than it's blimmin' hard and expensive. Yeah. Um, and you've got to be really, really determined um, and probably have some help. Um, yeah. Is it different if you're going down a military route? So if you're going down the military route, you're signing up for a larger commitment of time. So if you want to join the RAF, you sign up for 18 years or your 40th birthday, whichever is the latter. So they want to get a really good return of service from you, which is, of course, understandable because it costs about, oh, I think it's about £4 million to train a person to get to the front line of fast jet flying anyway. So a lot more expensive. Yeah, a lot more expensive than commercial flying. But commercially, the difference is you're paying it yourself. (laughs) So you're paying £150,000 out of your own pocket to become a commercial airline pilot. Whereas, of course, in the military, you're not. You're signing up for an 18-year commitment. You signed up, you were 17, you you had to finish school. Well, I was awarded this scholarship, basically gave you 30 hours, and there was no strings attached to that. So that was fantastic. So I went off to Blackpool and I flew, and I paid the extra 10 hours out of my pocket money and out of my newspaper round savings and um, gained my private pilot's license. At this point, though, women weren't allowed to be pilots in the Air Force still. So they'd just been allowed as um, multi-engine pilots, but they weren't allowed to fly on the front line of fast jet operations. You know, I picked this career that didn't exist, basically. I wanted to be a fast jet pilot and you couldn't be one. But I went off to university and I was was at Birmingham Uni and I joined Mm. a club there called the University Air Squadron. And again, that's something that I always say to anyone that's sort of listening to these things, if that's something that is of interest to you, then the university squadrons give a really great representation of what it's like in the military. It's a step up from cadets. I think cadets is fantastic for that initial insight, but at that university level, you really do see, you know, is this an organisation I want to join? And it sold it to me. I was desperate to join the Air Force. Did you ever think of doing the short service limited commission before university? Um, but the way it works, though, for, for pilots, you ca- you could sign up for a short service commission, but it was 12 years for pilots still. So it's not like sort of oh, like wow. the army okay. where it's like three or four years, I think, isn't it? What were you reading at university and were you were you a very sporty person? Yeah, so I'm six foot tall, um, and some describe Amazonian in nature. I like to think sporty, think sporty. Um, yeah, so I would I play a lot. Of, so I played netball for the uni um, first team. I play a lot of hockey. I, I, I still play a lot of tennis now, um, which I love tennis. I was studying geography, actually geography and sports science. So really relevant right. to the air force, as someone was said. Oh, you good? You can run with a map. there's a little bit more to it than that but um yeah so that was that but the thing is you don't have to do a degree that's relevant in any way actually to the forces they just if you're going to go to university you do a degree that you want to do um don't do one that you think the air force would like so second year uni they changed the rules and they opened the doors to women uh to fly fast jets i was like oh my god the timing was like really perfect for me because at that point i'd been flying lots on the university air squad and I'd proven myself to be sort of one of their top sort of pilots on that on, in that environment 
now the door's open to women and I apply to join. When I took all the aptitude tests to be the pilot, and then when I say aptitude tests, they're all done on a computer. So yeah. it's not just the psychometric testing, but they're testing hand-to-eye coordination, memory skills, that side of things. And I failed all of those tests. And you're allowed to, to only take them twice in your lifetime. So I waited a year, I resat them all, and I failed them all again. <laughs> and that was it. So right. officially, that should be it for me. Uh, that should be the end of my road. So what happened? I, I'm intrigued. Well, yeah, that's when you need some people on your side, basically. And mine came in the form of the boss of this university air squadron, a guy called Carl Bufton, and he was a squadron leader. He couldn't understand why I'd failed the test because I was, I'd proved myself to be a really good pilot. And he said, hold on a minute, this is not right. Maybe the tests are flawed. And because they'd only just opened the doors to women, when they actually investigated it, a lot of women were failing the tests compared to men. About 70% of women compared to about 67% of men were passing them. I realised there was probably unconscious bias within the tests, wow. but because they'd never been tested on women, they'd never yeah. obviously had this actually coming to the forefront before. And so in the end, with his um, help and with me writing a lot of letters initially they offered me a commission to become an air traffic controller to join the air force and I didn't want to do that job I kept thinking oh it's a foot in the door you know once I'm in I can make my case uh, and I wrote lots of letters and he kept on escalating my case through the ranks and eventually I got um, a branch change to become a pilot wow but I did find out I did find out they were taking on as a test case they said to see how far I'd get before I failed because they'd never lovely. had someone lovely <laughs> can you imagine lovely, lovely. so supported so yeah. what what year did you officially join then the RAF? So I joined in 94 um, and yeah, and then I served for 17 years. I left in 2011. Wow, God, 17 years. And I mean, talk us through, I mean, you've done some amazing things, but I mean, can you talk us through your journey and, you know, how you progressed to be on the front line Flying tornadoes, I mean, what, 45 missions over Iraq? Is that, I mean, yeah. God. So the first four years of training, so you initially start, you do officer training, and you meet an incredible group of individuals doing that. And then at the time there was this thing. And, and how many other women, sorry, were training? I think on my time. intake, I think on my intake as as pilots, there were about four of us, I think. Out of how many? About um, it was 145 people on the intake, of which 40 were pilots and four of us were women at that stage. But what was really lovely was you were with the same sort of gang of guys. So they became like your brothers, your best friends, really. And there would be small changes with each course as you progressed. But actually, these became your best friends, you know. So when people said, oh, did you often think about being the only woman? I didn't really think about it like that. I was just part of the course. Was it that easy then? I mean, you say they're like brothers... Was yeah, it that easy? Where did you sleep? Where did you, like, on a basic level, yeah. you know, there, hadn't, there hadn't been females, because you must have been asked that question so many times. But oh, no, it's just interesting. So, I mean, you, you're you all in a, the officer's mess together, so you all have your own rooms, which is fine. So it's not like you're in a barracks sort of room at all like that. So have your own rooms. The interesting thing was there was no flying kit for women. So we were wearing men's kits. So I basically, the whole of my career wore men's wife fronts as my long johns. So you have to wear these like thermal long johns. They have now got the kit for women, by the way. Um, this was obviously a quite a while ago. <laughs> what a relief, thank goodness for that. But um, so, yeah, and of course it would it would hug you in the wrong places or the kit would. Yeah, but it was, I bet. It was just... It was interesting. The actual flying, they assume that you can fly because otherwise you wouldn't have got to that stage. So the initial stage is just learning to fly the Hawk and then you'll go off and do general handling in it, aerobatics. Then you would do instrument flying where they cover as, as if you can't see outside. So you're purely flying on your instruments in case it's bad weather. So that's, you can't see out of the window. 
Yeah, that's right. Well, so they, so you're they, literally, you put, they you cover wear this, these flaps over your helmet that cover all the view so that you can only literally see the instruments in front of you. You know, often we have to fly in thick cloud and you need mm. to be able to ensure that you can fly safely in cloud and bring the aircraft out the bottom of the cloud and then land on the runway. So you, you do all those procedures. Uh, then you'll do formation flying and then you will start doing things like navigation skills. So flying at low level, at hitting, and then they bring in hitting targets. Once you finish the basic side of the flying, you go across to the advanced weapons side where you will do things like bombing, strafing, which is the air-to-ground gun attacks. Which bit did you struggle with the most in that training? Was it the nail visibility? Was it the aiming at the target? What did you um, personally find it, the most challenging? To be honest, there were lots of hard bits. Probably the most difficult bit was when we were started to put all of these skill sets together um, in what's called battle or tactical low-level formation. And it's when two aeroplanes go off as a pair of aeroplanes and you have a full navigation route that you're going to fly. You're going to hit targets within five seconds. So you don't have a GPS or a moving map or, you know, someone saying, turn left at the next roundabout. You know, you're up there by yourself. There's, there's also... No one, there's no one talking to you from the ground. No, no one talking to you from the ground. So you're in the aircraft by yourself. And if you can imagine the mental gymnastics that are going on to try to adapt your route with wind, you know, affecting it. And put on top of that, then you have an instructor that is airborne in another aeroplane and they're trying to attack you um, as if they are the enemy. They're trying to get behind you into what's called the six o'clock position. So basically right behind your jet, you can't physically see into that space. So if they can attack you from there, you're very vulnerable. And that's why you have a wingman, because now you can protect each other. But it means and you are you must talking talk. to your wingman? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you, the two of you are literally in tandem. You're going along. You almost need to be an extension of each other's brains as you're at low level. And it means you must coordinate every single turn. You can't just think, oh, I'm going to turn 90 degrees. Because if you do that, then you're no longer as a pair. You will now be behind each other. And the thing I was struggling with was these battle turns, it's called, where basically if you're coming up to a turn, both aeroplanes pull up, you cross at a perpendicular angle, and then when you roll out, you're in perfect formation. That's what I was failing. I was always in the wrong place. And basically, I had three trips to go to graduating, to gaining my RF wings, and I would failed this fly. I failed it again. And I got into an absolute spiral of loss of confidence. And mental health in those days was not something we talked about. If you can imagine, this was the 1990s. It was very testosterone-filled. It was very alpha male. And if I was to say, oh, I'm feeling a bit stressed, they'd have gone, she's vulnerable, she's weak, get rid. So you never wanted to say that at the time. Yeah, and yeah. you sort of shut down. And I was sort of isolating myself to some degree. I'd go back to my room every night and I'd sit on my bed sort of surrounded by a cardboard cockpit and I would pretend to fly and go through these full mental dress rehearsals. And on this occasion with my chop ride the next day, one of my course mates popped into my room, knocked on the door and said, we're taking you out. And I was like, I don't think you are because quite frankly, they've been celebrating and drinking heavily. But when he said, will you trust me? I sat there and I thought, you know, what do I have to lose? And he took me down to the bike sheds where we cycled off to the other side of the airfield and we spent the next few hours basically on a parade square with the remaining members of my course who had basically made their bikes look like aeroplanes by sticking wings on them. And we spent the next few hours basically cycling in this battle formation with one of them yelling, 30 left, 60 right, you know, rotate all the manoeuvres I couldn't grasp in the air. We did on the ground and suddenly it was so easy. The penny dropped and I thought, 
oh my god and I flew my chop ride the next day and it went brilliantly and my my instructor mm-hmm. got out and he kissed the floor casually to my right and I thought oh that doesn't bode well <laughs> so I, said, I thought he was thinking I'm alive and he just looked he said what the hell was that you finally brought your mojo to work man you know that was Aww. brilliant can, can we go back to that that you being up there as a pair and you've got an instructor or whatever you call them basically popping out of nowhere um yeah. to to challenge you does that ever get dangerous i mean bear in mind you're not fully qualified at that point and you've got like someone sort of goading you prodding you trying to not trying to make you fail but trying to see if you've got what it takes were yeah. there moments i mean i'm sure there are hairy moments in your career i'm sure there are plenty of them but i mean it, well, you have to push people. So how are you ever going to find mm. out if someone has mm. the capability and the capacity to do the job unless you push people? So the philosophy actually is normally you're going to train harder than you're ever going to have to fight for real. So the training that you have is intense. They are trying to cut out the chaff from the wheat at that point uh, yeah. and work out who will make it. But it is safe because you're building up to this. It's not like you're going, not like we're taking you, Georgie, and saying, right, get into this fast jet, we're going to fly low-level mission, blah, you know, you, it's a stepping stone. So by the time you've got to that point, you hopefully have got the capacity. But, it, mm. you know, you can't rule out the fact that it is dangerous. I have lost friends at low level in training. In fact, all the friends that I have in lost... In training, really? Yeah, are all in training, apart from one that was um, a combat loss. Um, everyone else I had that was lost literally through flying into the ground or an engine problem at low level. Well, in training. Yeah, all in training. In fact, one of the worst ones was when I was on the operational conversion unit and helped two two guys, Sean and Dickie, plan a mission. They went off and they never came back. And it was horrific. There is an edge and it is a dangerous job. It's not just something that you walk into and think you'll be fine. And that's why there is such intense screening and training to do the role that you do. So, so that whole process, that training process... How long, does that, how long did you say that takes? I finally reached the front line in 1999. So five, what, well, it was about four and a half years after joining. It took me to get to the front line. So as a Tornado GR4 pilot, what what happened then? So you, you qualified, that's what you were going to do. And yeah. what happened next? How long was it until you went out on a real life mission? I know, you know, they say there are, good moments to be in the armed forces and well yeah i guess moments where there's more opportunities to actually you know do what you real life. to yeah, yeah exactly absolutely. not everyone has that you know if, if you happen to join the army or the military yeah. at a peaceful time you might not not ever really be sent out on real life missions yeah not the case for you um no, so no, how quickly did that happen i got to the squadron in november and i was on operations in the february so three months later, basically, just enough time for me to get combat ready on the squadron. And then we deployed out to Iraq. That three months that you went out, that tour, what does that look like? What is, uh, how often are you flying when you go out on tour and you're in the RAF? I seem to remember we did seven days on, two days off. That was the sort mm-hmm. of routine. So seven days of working. And of those seven days, you would probably be flying for five, possibly six of them. On the two days that you weren't flying, you would be in helping people plan missions as well. Um, we were doing a lot of night flying as well. So your body clock was all over the place. You'd be flying some days would be a morning mission. Some days would be a night mission the next day. It just depended what you were doing. I found that that trip overseas really challenging because I'd only just arrived on the squadron. I hadn't really bedded into who I was and, and identified as 
being Mandy, not just, I, I think I tried to be one of the boys initially too much. And then I realized I didn't want to just be one of the boys. I wanted to be myself, 200 people on the squadron. And I was the only woman and I was really isolated and just talking to men all the time. I found really, really difficult. And you might think, well, sure, you would had that in training. But in training, these were like my best friends. Mm. And at the weekend, I was seeing my boyfriend. I was seeing girlfriends in London. I was partying, you know. Suddenly, you're out there for three months, only with these men that you don't really know. And one of them is making your life really, really unpleasant. And it was difficult. It was really hard to the point where I actually thought, have I made a monumental career choice (laughs) failure here? And do I want to stay in it? And I think I remember saying to my boyfriend, um, who's my husband now, I think I'm going to quit. I hate this so much. And he said, Mandy, you've not worked this hard just to give up at this stage. And thank goodness I didn't, because actually the subsequent times that I went out there, there there's been a slight change in personnel on the squadron. And things changed very different. It was a very different atmosphere. And, you know, I enjoyed my time out there and I found it challenging, demanding, and yet. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com code buttery exclusions apply see site for details really rewarding yeah can, can you talk to us a bit more about the missions that um you completed i mean you, how many tours did you go on in your career so i did three tours of duty over iraq um and then i was pregnant when Afghanistan started kicking off. So I didn't do Afghanistan, although my squadron didn't actually deploy out to Afghanistan anyway. Um, but no, so I did the Iraq conflict and flew 45 combat missions. So, I mean, uh, a mission would often be um, flying at dusk or dawn or late at night. Um, and what did you prefer? I quite like night flying, actually. Um, I did enjoy that. It was it was challenging. Every single day was slightly different as well. We did a lot of risk reconnaissance in my first tour. And then as we progressed, the let's say the state out there was getting more volatile. We would have full threat briefs every morning as to where all the major threats were. When we planned our routes, we would try to avoid things like surface-to-air missiles and guns that shoot up to 
you know, high level, like 30,000 feet. We're not talking little pop guns, but... Oh, um, you mean you, you wanted to avoid being near them? Is that what you mean? Yes, yeah. So you would plan your routes around all the sites where they had the latest intelligence, where all of the weapons were. And basically, you would go off and you would do reconnaissance. So we'd often taking photos of, of more intelligence to gather more in, intelligence for the, the ground troops and also for other people. And then on one occasion, I was engaged by a surface-to-air missile. It was the last night out there and I was going home the next day and I was starting to relax and we just swept up my last target when suddenly... What does that mean, you just swept up your last target? Oh, sorry, I just covered my last target. We got all the intelligence that we needed and I just put my uh, route into the uh, navigation kit to head back towards Kuwait to base to our base back there. And I thought, oh, I'm going home tomorrow. Oh, I can't wait to see my boyfriend. And then suddenly um, my nav just shouted to me, you know, break right! Um, with some urgency, uh, at which point it was a known manoeuvre. I slammed my throttles fully forward and I rolled the aircraft really quickly to almost inverted, pulled very hard towards the ground. We're up at, quite high at this stage. He put out all of the decoys, which are called flares. Uh, these are sort of pyrotechnics that burn at a really, really hot intensity. And what they're trying to do is, is they're acting as a decoy to a heat-seeking surface-to-air missile that had been fired. It had currently locked onto the heat of my engines. And yet when the flares leave the aircraft, you chill your engines, which means you bring them back to idle. So suddenly you're not generating a huge amount of heat. Uh, the flares leave at exactly the same time, and you're basically trying to decoy these uh, the missile to take your flares and not you. And it worked. And it worked really well, thank goodness, because I'm here to tell the tale. Gosh, yeah. Harry, uh, what what other Harry moments were there? I mean, that one's obviously stayed with you, but uh, I mean, can you share a couple of other yeah. um, ups and downs, one. highlights yeah. or, or low points? I'm sure there were some amazingly satisfying, exciting, thrilling moments as well as... Yeah, I mean, one was um, flying in the UK, actually. I was doing low-level flying. Um, I was just over Scotland. What's um, low-level? How low are you? Some areas can go down to 100 feet. So if you think of a pylon, that's a big electrical pylon. That's 250 feet high. So normally you're flying Shit. at 250 feet. So that's about the height you're flying at. But in some areas in Scotland, there's what's called OLF, operational low flying. And it's where we can go down as low as 100 feet. Wow. So you think some trees are 100 feet tall. Yeah. Um, we do a lot of that training in Canada where you've got really open spaces. So you're not going to annoy anyone because that's really low. If you come over a house or something at 100 feet, that's really low. So you tend to do it in least populated areas like northern Scotland. And why would you be doing that for reconnaissance, for taking photos? Well, that wouldn't, and that wouldn't be for reconnaissance. That would be that you're, you're keeping your skills honed so that if you are going into an area of conflict and they are using surface-to-air missiles and things like that, you have, if you can imagine a cone like coming out of that surface-to-air missile, if you're coming at high level, they'll, they'll be spotted a mile off. Whereas if you're coming in at very, very low level, you can get very close to your target without them actually identifying that you're there because you're being lost in all the clutter of the ground. So basically, that's what they did in Gulf War One. Um, they were hugging the ground. So you don't want to lose these sorts of skills because these are the skills that tend to be the ones that you lose the quickest. Right. So, yeah, so I was doing some low flying and we came in over the coast and I pulled up quite high. And we hit a flock of birds. Um, one went into my engine. The other one took out all of my forward-looking infrared, which is one of the cameras that you've got at the front where you can see through as well. And my engine spluttered and basically ended up as a single engine. And I called Mayday, Mayday, Mayday uh, on the radio. 
Um, what does that mean? It, it basically means I am in trouble, and if I don't land at somewhere very, very quickly, I'm going to have to eject. Because the tornado's got two air engines, it is a, an emergency situation. Um, so, yeah, I did need to land pretty quickly. We we had taken a lot of um, damage to the aircraft with this flock of birds. It was what took, if you think, uh, Captain Sullenberger and the Hudson, that yeah. was a, you know, a, yeah. some birds that were obviously ingested into his engines. And so mm. it took him down and it would certainly take a tornado down. And we managed to divert into Prestwick. And I'll never forget because we were coming in on this approach and there was a, but a Boeing 747, so a jumbo jet that was coming into land. And I was coming in, and because I'd called a mayday, uh, an emergency, they told the 747 to go around for the emergency aeroplane. And that <laughs> huge airliner powering up to go around as I whipped in. And, just um, for you, quite right, too. <laughs> yeah, landed safely. Yeah, so that was quite a hairy one. And another one was in Canada where we landed in really hideous weather. And the runway was flooded and we aquaplaned, which basically if you've ever hit a big, big thick puddle, a deep puddle and you start to feel like you're spinning on, on the surface, that's what it was like, except I was going at 160 miles an hour heading sideways down a runway in Canada. Jeez. So, I, presume yeah. you, I presume you didn't ever eject? No, I didn't. Thank goodness. Um, I do have I quite a few I've, colleagues. Have, really? Have. Yeah, it's really isn't the last worst case scenario. And what's your, what are your chances of making it after ejecting? Um, really high. I mean, the Martin Baker seats, the ejection seats that we use are phenomenal. So G-force, if you imagine yourself, so on the ground, we're under 1G, one force of gravity. On a roller coaster, when your cheeks go heavy, you're experiencing two or three times the force of gravity. When you eject, you pull 20 G-force. <gasps> so 20 G to clear that aeroplane from the situation that it's in. And at 20G, it, you will actually have compression of your spinal cord. So you actually end up losing height if you eject. That is quite incredible. Oh, that is quite incredible. Are there ever moments when, as an RAF pilot, you don't fly because of weather conditions? Or do you just, yeah. can you always take it on? No, absolutely not. So I think I remember taxiing out on one occasion. It was a Friday afternoon. And I was taxiing out and this snowstorm appeared out of nowhere. And I was on the radio and the guy that's sort of the operations, he's the authoriser, sort of in charge of what's going on on the squadron. I, I sort of contacted him on the radio and went, it's getting really bad weather, but he has no window at that point. He can't see outside. He's going, I'm sure it could be fine. I was like, it's, it's really snowing. <laughs> and by the time we got to the runway, um, it was literally a complete whiteout. And I sort of made the judgment call and I said, my, so my nap and I were going, I don't think we're going to go on this. This is ridiculous. We're never going to land back here. So we just taxied back in and he finally came out and he went, oh my God, it's a snow blizzard. We're like, that's what we were trying to tell you. Um, so no, there, of course there's going to be weather conditions that you choose not to fly in. Ice, um, snow, um, huge thunderstorms, things like that. You tend to avoid all of those things. I'll never forget one of the worst clouds actually I've ever had to fly in was we were coming back across the Atlantic and we were doing air-to-air refueling. So you have a big airliner that's full of fuel and they have hoses hanging out the back and you basically, they have a basket on the end and you extend a probe that's on your aeroplane and you go up towards the back of this airliner with this hose and basket and you plug into this and then you get fuel from them, an airborne petrol wow. station. Wow. It's incredible. And we, were, we were tanking across the Atlantic coming home in really thick cloud and we heard that America had shut their airspace and 9-11 was happening. And that was horrific because we had no understanding so sorry, what happened. So sorry, when 9-11 was happening, you were in the air? On the way back from America. 
Yeah, so we were literally over the Atlantic at the time in a really, really big, thick, thunderstormy type cloud without any understanding what's happened. I mean, we're taught this really great mantra to control the controllables and if you can't let it go. And I love that. I use it all the time in my life now. Is when you feel you sort of get your stress bucket filling up, when you feel yourself getting out of control, thinking, oh, panic setting in, think, right, what can I do about it? Okay, can I, you know, what is it within my sphere of influence? What can I manage? What can I control? And if I can, I do something about that. And if I can't, I just physically say to myself, well, let it go. Don't let yourself get wound up about it. And by almost allowing yourself to let things go, it stops you from letting yourself get Mm. stressed. So when you were going on your missions over Iraq, were you in a two or a four generally then as well? Always a four. But also in a bigger one as well. So you're flying with a coalition of aircraft up to 80 aeroplanes from operating out of four different countries from the Persian Gulf area. Um, and you would have this huge mission planning where you would work out where everyone is going to be, what everyone's um, mission is for the day. And you deconflict that so that you obviously don't go in the same bit of airspace as somebody else. And how, in those missions that you carried out over Iraq, were any of your colleagues ever shot down? As, as Yeah, hot? They, yeah were. they were. So I just came back, actually, and the squadron that took over from us, um, they were out there, and a really good friend of mine, Kev Main, um, who was the pilot, and his backseater guy called Dave, uh, were coming back into Kuwait, and the Americans were on the ground, and they mistook it for a um, anti-radiation missile, and they launched a missile, and they shot them down, and they both died. Uh, And it was awful, absolutely horrific, and horrific also for the... American operator that had shot them down. Gosh, of course, yeah. They were going on what they thought was the latest intelligence. The equipment was not giving off the correct code that it should have been the tornado. And um, therefore, they misidentified it as an enemy and shot it down. And um, yeah, just an awful and tragic loss of life. On one of those missions um, over Iraq, how long would you be out there for? Uh, about four hours, up to about four hours, probably, uh, depending on what the mission was. Um, so and how do you not you... need to go to the loo? I mean, as a woman who needs the loo a uh, lot, after three <laughs> children, how many children do you have, Mandy? I have two. Uh, I have four in total, two stepchildren and two of my own. So, Aww. yeah, I need, I need the loo a lot now as well. Um, yeah. But, um, I mean, I say, I mean on I, a practical I, level, what, how are you doing that? <laughs> I was going to say, have you read my book? Because in my book, there's almost an entire chapter about me having a wee, me having a wee over a rack, and it's the one story that people always pull up and they always go, Is it really? Talk us, talk me through having a wee over a rack in a in a fast jet. Well, it was not talk us through nice. having a wee over a rack in a fast jet. <laughs> How did you do that? It doesn't go well, basically. So the first time I was out there, I didn't have a wee, and I was desperate, and I gave myself a, a urine infection because I held it for four hours. And um, yeah, I should have just wet myself. Basically, I should have just done that. Um, the next year, I was out there. I thought, all right, I won't do that. I will go. But there was, there's no way that you can have a wee over in a tornado as a female. For men, there is. They have a little plastic bag with a very dehydrated sponge in it, and they they have a wee in this bag, and it absorbs the water. And in hindsight, what I should have done was I should have probably just got one of the dehydrated sponges and just weed onto it. But I thought, I've got a bottle of water. I'll drink the water. And then I'll try and wee into the bottle. So I now made the situation while you're flying a tornado. Yeah, over over a rack. And basically, you have to make your. I had to strip off, so I had to unstrap from my aircraft. So I had to make my ejection. And you're allowed to do that. Well, no, technically not really. It's not ideal. You got to go. You got to go. I had to go, and there was no solution for it. So basically, 
I had to make my navigator put a seat in as well to make it safe so neither of us could eject. And basically, I started to unstrap and I got all myself, all my kit off and I've got my bottle there and I couldn't do it because, quite frankly, every time I try to relax to do the deed, my navigator go, Mandy, I'm sorry, but there's a surface to a missile looking at us. I'm like, will you stop talking about it? I'm trying to have a wee. Um, we go, <laughs> SA6, right, two o'clock. I'm like, ah! So, yeah, it was an unsuccessful wee and I'd made it 10 times worse by drinking all the water. So I had to put my kit all back on again and strap in and basically hold it again. But this wow. time I didn't give myself an infection, which is good. And are you in majorly protective kit in case you go up in flames? Yeah, so the kit you have is phenomenal, really. It's loads of different layers. I mean, even in the heat of Iraq, we had to wear thermals or undergarments because basically your flying suit is flame retardant. It will stop mm-hmm. you from burning, but you don't want to boil your flesh inside it. So you need a cotton layer, uh, even a cotton bra. So as a woman, you had to wear not wired and a cotton bra because if you were wearing nylon, that might melt if you were in a in the you know, in a fire. So basically you would wear thermal underwear and then you would wear your flying suit. And then on top of your flying suit, you would wear um, what's called a life support jacket, uh, which has um, uh, an inflatable, you know, uh, buoyancy aid in the collar. It's got loads of different survival pieces of equipment in it. And then in war zones, you also wear a combat survival waistcoat on top of that, which has a gun. It has gold bullion. It has coins. It has radios. It has flares, all of these things. And so when you get, by the time you're walking out to the kit, you know, you put on about 30 kilos of kit and you're walking out. So you're pretty heavy and you're pretty hot. Hot, yeah. And it's 45 degrees and you're not allowed to turn the air conditioning on. We weren't allowed to use the air con for the aircraft because it was cooling all of their weapon systems and our electronics. The only time the air con kicked in was once we got airborne. So by the time you get airborne, it's about 45 minutes of sitting in a greenhouse with the canopy down. You, your kit is drenched, uh, literally drenched. I would get out, and on one occasion, I lost four pounds in weight on a two-hour flight, purely just through sweating. Jesus. And um, you've got two sons of your own. Um, I do. What age did you have them? Were you still flying? I had them at 30 and 31. So my boys now are 17 and 16, and they're six foot four and six foot three. And they look down on their little mummy and they kiss <laughs> my head and they go, oh, little lady. Yeah, so they're huge. I was still flying. Um, you can't fly though once you're pregnant. So as soon as I discovered I was pregnant, well, actually, very sadly, the first time I discovered I was pregnant, I was still flying on the front line and I miscarried. And I think it was probably from flying because you're constantly being hit in the stomach by a G-suit and I didn't know I was pregnant. So I very sadly lost that that baby. And then I knew at that point, therefore, I wanted to have children. And now I knew I could get pregnant. I then requested a ground tour, um, which was just been put into place anyway. So I went and did a ground tour at um, high uh, headquarters at High Wycombe, where you, you you have to be a tornado pilot to do these sort of jobs that they need to do. So I did that. And that was what's called a very productive ground tour because I then had my two children on that ground tour, which was great. Yeah, I sort of had my full maternity and I found a job. I lived down in Winchester and I found a job fairly close by in Salisbury at at, uh, Boscombe Down, which is a big testing site. And again, it had to be a tornado pilot to do the job. And I requested this job and I was told, if you take that job, you will never be promoted in the Air Force. And I thought, what do you do? It's that classic career, can you have it all conversation? And the answer is, I don't believe you can have it all. And I certainly couldn't in the military for myself. At that time, the military has done a lot to improve, you know, options and situations. But 
I took that job, which was actually ended up being perfect for me. It was nine to five. It was Monday to Friday. I couldn't be deployed. Uh, I could be mum and I could do a really good job for the Air Force. I actually had loads of opportunity to fly there as well, which was great. But no more missions? No more missions, sadly. Do you look back and think, God, wow, what a career and what an achievement. And would you do it all again? And Yeah, I would do it again in a heartbeat. Uh, I do a lot of speaking now and especially speak to <clears throat> young people, uh, schools, organisations, you know, about sort of following your dreams and really thinking big. So not limiting yourself by what you think you can do, you know, go even bigger than that. And I think for something like being a fast jet pilot and seeing time in combat, actually... It's it's many young person's dream. And then they think, oh, but I would never be able to achieve that. And I say, well, why can't you? If you want something enough and you're willing to work hard enough towards it, it's amazing what you can do. So would I recommend it? Would I do it again? Yes, in a heartbeat. Absolutely, I would. And that's where actually a very fortuitous conversation at a dinner party with me telling a a story about Iraq rather drunkenly uh, led to someone saying, have you ever thought about going into keynote speaking, motivational speaking? And I said, I've never even heard of one. I don't know what that means. And she was like, well, they often have them at conferences. I've like, never been to a conference. And she said, okay, well, at the end of a conference with lots of people from you know businesses and organizations, they often get a really big, powerful speaker. I think you could do it. And I was like, great. So I did one. And from that moment onwards, when people said, what do you do? I said, oh, I'm a keynote speaker. <laughs> I'd only done one. I got booking after booking and it literally just started to take off. And for the last 10 years, I've had the honor of literally sharing my story with organizations, big and small, all over the world now. Uh, it's been fascinating. The fact that you are such a highly acclaimed speaker. Well, the proof is the proof is in the fact that I heard of you through somebody who heard you speak and said how brilliant you were and said, Oh my god, I heard this incredibly inspiring woman speak and she spoke at a school and the children were just literally on the edge of their seat and oh. um she was a total force and you must get in touch with her and get her on Shedduck. If you're looking for a brilliant speaker, you need to check out hicksunlimited.com. That's your website, isn't it? It is, And, and yeah. Mandy, you've written a book, An Officer, Not a Gentleman. I need to read it. You um, do, you do. It's inaudible, it actually, George. You yeah. might want to just do that, listen to it with oh, the kids. <laughs> and is it you reading it? It is, yeah, oh, I read brilliant. it. brilliant. Yeah. Oh, well, having interviewed you, I'd now far rather hear you read it than um, read it in my own head. Um, just as a final note, um, would you advise women um, consider a career in the armed forces? I would. I think it's brilliant. I think it's it's fascinating. I, I just, people want to put people into boxes all the time, and I've never, ever been one to be put into a box and said, oh, it's a man's job, it's a woman's job. It's a job for anybody. It's a job for somebody that loves a challenge. They they are quick thinking, they're team players, someone that, you know, is happy to make decisions. All of those things that, you know, sit with, regardless of your gender, I think it is the most fascinating job. And literally, I would recommend it in a heartbeat. Amazing. Mandy, thank you so much. I'm going to sit here with a pang of regret that I never got further than the cadets. But uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure I'd kind of got to where you did. I had to say, I can't imagine you all camouflaged up, Georgie, crawling no, through. Well, I've got, I've got the pictures of me um, to prove it, but uh, I think they might I'm remain uh, off social media, that's for sure. <laughs> um, Mandy, thank you so much for your time today. Your busy lady, I know it's been great to talk to I you. Um, great to talk to you, you so too, much. that's it for today if you enjoyed that then do please rate review subscribe tell your friends to listen to and we will be back soon thanks very much bye-bye